Hello, everybody, and again, welcome to the KCAST podcast. I'm Chris Eckenroth. It's been a while, but we are back. In the middle of this pandemic, when we all might have a different schedule, maybe a little bit more time, we're going to be digging into something new. It seems appropriate in the middle of the pandemic to be digging into some words found at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The idea over this little series we're going to conduct is that there's going to be some thoughts from every single chapter from the book of Revelation. Some chapters, we're going to kind of go almost go verse by verse in extreme detail. Other chapters are so in-depth and so much detail, we may just be picking a point here, there, or just a couple of places, but maybe not every point. Today, we find ourselves in the book of Revelation. Maybe you're just going to listen as you do something else. Maybe you have time to pull out your Bible and make some notes. Either way, Revelation chapter 1. I'd love to pray as we begin. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It's sure and it's true. Would you teach each one of us, no matter where we're at, more about you and what you want for us? Lord, may we see you wherever we're at. We love you. Thanks for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it said. I'm going to read the whole first little section as designated in my Bible. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel and his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, To all things that he saw, verse 3, blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. The first thing we notice in verse 1 is this, that this last book of the Bible is intended with but one purpose, to reveal more of Jesus. It's a revealing, it's a revelation of Jesus, which God gave to show his servants, the Bible says, things which must shortly take place. John's the one who's seeing it. He's hearing it. He bears witness and and testimony of Jesus and to all the things that he saw. He's the one who is seeing this and then wrote it down. Verse 3, blessing or blessed, is he who reads. There's a blessing to those who read, to those who hear, and those who keep the things that are written in it. For the time is near. It's a very relevant topic, isn't it? The book of Revelation and these words, because the Bible keeps coming back. As John is writing, he is emphasizing that everything that he's writing about is going to be taking place shortly. Verse 3, the time is near. So as we dig in and look at these words, we can know that there is relevance and, and application to these words for us because the time is near. So John goes on in verse 4 and he says, To the seven churches which are in, which are in Asia, this geographic location, And then he gives this greeting, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne of God, verse five, and from Jesus Christ. 
So John gives this greeting. He says, grace to you and peace. This greeting specifically is coming from three different entities. John is the one who's communicating it. This grace and peace, this greeting is coming from him who was and is and is to come. In other words, the Father, Almighty God, the everlasting. Jumping into verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. In the middle there, it talks about the seven spirits who are before the throne of God. Of course, the number seven in prophetic literature, scripture, is very symbolic of perfection. The seven spirits. It would make sense, since there's a, this greeting is coming from the Father and the Son, that the seven spirits represent the Holy Spirit. This one who gives gifts to men, the, the uh, gifts of the Spirit, as described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verses 4 to 11. And so the seven spirits is simply a description of the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace from the one who has always been and will always be from the Holy Spirit. And of course, from Jesus Christ, that the faithful witness, he is the faithful witness of the character of God. He's the firstborn from the dead, the Bible says, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood. I love that. It doesn't matter where you come uh, in scripture. It just keeps coming up as a theme that almighty God sent his son Jesus to save us. Why? The creator's just in love. And he washed our sins in his blood. Verse 6, and made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So verse 6 there. And has made us kings and priests. Interesting. The literal Greek there actually says, has made us a kingdom of priests. Which makes sense as you dig back into scripture. There's other verses that talk about this, that the kingdom of God is a kingdom made up of priests who proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This certainly was applicable uh, to the Israelites as they came out of darkness. They came out of bondage. They came out of Egypt. Here's what it says in Exodus 19.6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. Sliding into the New Testament, 1 Peter 2 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so it makes sense. Verse 6, the literal translation is, and he made us a kingdom of priests. This group of people, we just proclaim, we can't stop talking about it. He's the one. He's the one who's washed my sins in his own precious blood. He's made me clean. He called us out. He brought us out with a mighty hand out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, into his presence to be close, to be together. Verse 7, behold, He is coming with clouds. Ah, it takes us back, doesn't it? 
to Acts chapter 1 when those disciples were watching as Jesus' feet left the ground and was taken up into clouds. The same way that he went, he's going to come back. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. It'll be a public event. It will not be a secret event. It'll be of such grandeur that you will not be able to miss it. It says, every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. It's in Mark 14, 62, where Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man coming with clouds of heaven. It's interesting that John is the one who writes this because he says, even they who pierced him. Within the four Gospels, it is only John. He's the only one who writes in his Gospel uh, the detail of Jesus being pierced with a spear in his side by the soldiers on the cross. The only one. It gives evidence, uh, even legitimacy, to the fact that the one who wrote the book of John, the gospel of John, is the same one who writes the book of Revelation. Even they who pierced him. The Bible describes that there will be a special resurrection for those, that Jesus is coming for those who pierced him, that they would see him come back. They would see him himself, themselves, excuse me. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Alpha and the Omega, of course, the first and last letter there in the Greek alphabet. Our modern translation would be, I'm the A and the Z and every letter in between. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John says here in verse 9, he says, I'm your brother. In other words, I've become part of the family of God just like you have. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. But my sins were washed in the blood of the Lamb. I was washed from my sins in his own blood. I've become part of the family. If you've done that too, then then we are brothers and sisters, John is saying. He says, I'm a companion in the tribulation. I'm in it too. I'm in this battle. I'm in this struggle. And the struggle is real. It's hard. It's a tribulation. It's interesting what it says in the book of Acts. It says this. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. It's not easy. It's hard. Oh, salvation is easy. See, Jesus accomplished and won our salvation on the cross. He did it. He paid it all, somebody. But it's still hard. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, He says, Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. He says, few, there are few who find it. It's hard. It's a hard walk. But again, Jesus, and we're going to find this out later in this chapter, that Jesus is right there. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear. Why? Because you are with me. Jesus says, I am with you always, all the way.
It's a difficult walk, but it's a walk that we do not take alone. We take with our shepherd, who is also described as our keeper. He is the one who keeps us. He is the one that if we fall, picks us up, dusts us up, say, let's keep going. I'm going to hold you, hold your right hand while you hold my righteous right hand. Hand in hand, step in step as we walk this difficult road together. But truth of the matter is, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Are you sure you want to still take up that cross? It's not easy. But man, oh man, it is beyond worth it. He goes on to say, companion in the tribulation, companion in the kingdom. Man, I'm a member of the kingdom just like you. And patience of Jesus Christ. The word patience there in the Greek actually means to remain under. You see, for the the follower of Jesus, the believer in Jesus, there is a choice every single day to remain under. To remain under his lordship, his kingship, his authority. Man, oh man, there's nothing better than being under Jesus Christ. You are under his authority, under his protection, under his his grace, under his mercy, just under his wings of righteousness as described in the Old Testament. The Christian chooses each day to remain under Jesus Christ. Ah, he's my Lord. He's my King. He's my Savior. John says, I was on the island that is called Patmos. Why? For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's talking about tribulation. He's talking about persecution. He's like, you're experiencing that? I get it because I've been exiled to an island called Patmos. For this reason, though, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus, that I can tell the story of Jesus. In other words, my tribulation and my difficulties that I've been experiencing are with purpose. That's encouraging. Because no matter what you are experiencing, if you are entering salvation through many tribulations, it is with pur- purpose. These struggles produce faith and perseverance and hope and all of these different things. All that you are going through is not without purpose. It is with purpose. So John says, I can identify, I can relate to you. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet. So we stopped there. I was in the spirit. In other words, he was in vision. He saw a vision. When? On the Lord's day. So you say, well, which, which day is that? Now, there's, there's evidence there from the original translation transla- trans, uh, of the Greek there that it actually can be translated Sunday. But as you begin to dig in just a little bit more and you begin to ask some questions, okay, what exactly is John talking about? What is the climate? What is the culture? Oftentimes in John's day, the word Lord was referred uh, or designated to Caesar. There was empirical Roman days, and they would call it the Lord's Day. Could it be that John is actually making a point here to say, you know what, there's only one Lord's Day? And in fact, as you dig into Scripture, there's only one day that is set apart from all the other days. There's one day. And that's the Sabbath. That's the seventh day. Notice what it says in Genesis 2 verse 3. It says, Then God blessed the seventh day. 
There is only one day out of the seven that has been blessed. Exodus 20 verse 11 says, The Lord blessed the Sabbath day. This day of rest, this uh, special day that he created for man. Isaiah 58, 13 says this, the Lord speaking, my holy day, speaking of the Sabbath. And then in Mark 2, 28, Jesus says this. He says that I am Lord of the Sabbath. Ah, my holy day, this day that I have blessed and hallowed, the seventh day, the Sabbath. There's only one day that the Lord designated out of the seven that is actually special. His day that he has created, that he is Lord of. So scriptural evidence would point to that John was in vision on the seventh day, on the Sabbath. And he heard behind him a loud voice as a trumpet. Jesus' voice, kind of spoiler alert, just told you that it's Jesus. His voice is described as a trumpet. It's kind of loud. It's, it's uh, attention-getting. Verse 11 saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I am the A and the Z. He says the first and the last. And what you see, John, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. John... On the beginning and the end, what you see, write it down, put it in a book, make copies of it, and send it to these seven geographical areas. Send it to all of these churches, the literal churches located in these seven geographical areas. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice. And that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst, in the middle, in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about his chest with a golden band. We, we just stop there for a second. He turns to see this one that is spoken. It sounded like a trumpet. It got his attention. And he turned and he saw seven golden lampstands. What are the seven golden lampstands? We, we skip ahead again. We, we spoil it here by jumping to verse 20. Last little phrase there of the last sentence says, The seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So John turns. He sees these seven golden lampstands that represent these seven literal churches. In the middle of the churches is standing Jesus. We can become frustrated with church, can't we? And it may be totally legitimate. The fact of the matter is, Jesus is the one who created this thing called church. Jesus is the head of the church. And now he is described here in Revelation chapter 1 as standing right dead center in the middle of his church. He doesn't stand back. He's not afar off. He's not directing uh, uh, through emails. and No, no. He's in the middle of his church. And all of a sudden you get this description of what he looks like. It's very similar to the description that Daniel gave in Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 to 9, when he saw this one like the Son of Man. Amazing. 
clothed with a garment down to his feet, verse 13, and girded about his chest with a golden band. Verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. Verse 16, and he had in his right hand seven stars. He had in his right hand seven stars. We skip ahead to verse 20. What are these seven stars? Last sentence. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. In his right hand, he holds these seven stars. Verse 20 gives us a definition, defines, tells us what it is, says it's the the angels of each of the seven churches. The Greek word right there for angel, as it often is, angeloi, used about approximately 75 times here in the book of Revelation. Almost exclusively, the word angeloi depicts and designates an angel, right? These messengers of God, and that's what it means, a messenger of God, holding in his right hand. But it would seem, as commentators write about this, they say it doesn't really totally make sense for John to write this vision down, send it to the seven churches, specifically to the seven angels, celestial beings of each church. It's why most commentators write and say that these messengers are actually the leaders, the pastor or the elders or the leaders of each church church. Again, this is just an amazing depiction because Jesus is in the middle of church. And then he holds the leaders of his church in his right hand. Still in verse 16, out of his mouth, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Very interesting. This beautiful picture, amazing, kind of awe-inspiring picture of Jesus holding in his hands the leaders of his church, and then out of his mouth comes this sword. It's sharp on both sides. Two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you get to the book of Judges when it's describing judges, literal judges in the book of Judges, or you get into the book of Proverbs. Those in, in seated on thrones of authority who are given the opportunity to judge, oftentimes their mouths are described as swords because they are speaking judgment. It's just an interesting description because it parallels a verse found in 2 Thessalonians, there we go, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. It describes the coming of Jesus. And it says that when he comes back, that the wicked will be destroyed, how? The second coming. By the breath of his mouth. In other words, the word of God. They'll be judged by the truth that comes out of his mouth and by the brightness of his coming. This two-edged sword uh, inflicts judgment and the brightness of his coming does the same. It's like the same description found here in verse 16. Out of his mouth went a two-edged, a sharp two-edged sword, judgment, and his countenance like the sun shining in its strength. 
Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. It's very similar to, the, to what's described by Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. That no strength remained in him when he saw the one. It's easy for us to become uh, kind of apathetic to the idea of Jesus and who he is. But this is the one who loves us. So much so that our sins can be washed in his own blood. This is the one who created everything. This is the one who was and is and is to come. This is the one who greets us with grace and peace. This is the one, man, he is, he is bright and he is shiny and his eyes like flames of fire and his hair like wool. I mean, he's amazing. And when John sees him, he falls down as if dead. He's not just being dramatic. There is no strength that is retained in him. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. What strikes me about this is the relationship that John and Jesus, Jesus and John, had while Jesus walked the earth. John was described as many things, he was described as a uh, son of thunder. But he was also described as John the Beloved, John the best friend of Jesus. This description of, of John, you know, at, at different times and eating together, that John kind of, as they would recline and eat, that John laying his head on the chest of Jesus, just this, this special, intimate relationship. Best friends. John falls down as if he's dead, and his best friend comes close. He doesn't just speak to John. He lays his hand on him. In other words, he would have to stoop down close, puts his hand on his friend John, and and as if to say, don't be afraid. It's me. The first and the last. Verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Jesus gives himself a well-deserved amen. And then can you hear it? Can you hear it? And I have the keys, he says, of Hades and of death. The word Hades is another word for the grave. John, those who are held captive, locked behind the door of death. I've got the keys. I've earned the keys. I've won the keys through the cross to open the door and to bring them out. I get this this picture of Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth as Lazarus comes out of the tomb where he was held in death. And now he is alive John, he says, write the things which you have seen. Other people need to know. They need to know that I'm alive. They need to know that I have the keys. They need to know that the time is near. Write the things which which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels, the messengers, the leaders of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. 
In our next podcast, we're going to start digging into these seven churches. Oh, they are seven literal churches found in seven literal geographical areas. They were seven churches that existed, but we will discover that these seven literal churches were also symbolic of the church of Jesus Christ throughout history, culminating in the final church in Jesus' description here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, Laodicea, which describes Jesus' last day church, just before he comes back. Oh, friends, there's a lot going on right now, but there is good news today. Jesus is alive. Jesus can wash your sins and mine in his own blood that we can become a kingdom of priests forever and always to be with him as he gets us back together at the second coming. Jesus says, John, write these things down. Tell everybody that not only this generation, but the following generations and the last generation would know that I have the keys. No matter what you're facing today, Jesus has the keys. He's alive, and he can't wait to come back to get you and me. I'm Chris Eckenroth. Thank you so much for listening today to the KCAST podcast. We'll talk to you soon.